All over the land are vast and handsome pastures with good grass for cattle. A grass that moved as a heaven-weaved quilt of earth, as if by root and stem, stood in protection of a hardy breed of livestock known as the Longhorn. Wild West Podcast proudly presents Trails, Cattle Drives, Cowboys, and Cattle Towns, Part 1, The Longhorn. Please join us at the end of the podcast as we review some interesting facts about the characteristics of the Longhorn. The Longhorn cattle, both domestic and wild, were a distinctive breed that originated on the Iberian Peninsula during the Middle Ages. The inheritance of the Longhorn occurred through the crossing of European all-purpose cattle with an Iberian type native to Spain and Portugal. The roots of the Texas Longhorn go back to the late 1400s. Cattle were not indigenous to North America. They were introduced by gold-seeking Spanish conquistadors. The first Spanish explorers turned their dark, thin-legged, wiry, Moorish Andalusian cattle loose on the Caribbean islands. These Andalusians, known as black cattle, also produced Spanish fighting bulls. Left on their own, the cattle strayed, grew more prominent, and soon turned wild. In the wild, they thrived, growing heavy-boned, skinny, and swift. Their long legs and long horns provided offensive weapons and defensive protection. But unfortunately, they developed a fiery temper and malicious cleverness. In 1521, Spanish sea captain Gregorio de Villalobos, defying a law prohibiting cattle trading in Mexico, left Santo Domingo with six cows and a bull and set sail to Veracruz, Mexico. The explorer Hernando Cortez also set sail with Criollo, or Spanish cattle, to have beef while on his expeditions. He branded his herds with three crosses, the first brand recorded in North America. As more Spanish explorers headed north, their crippled and exhausted cows were left behind, loose on the trail to fend for themselves. These Spanish explorers held to the Castilian tradition that grass was a gift of nature. Spanish cattlemen did not fence their fields or herds, and cattle quickly wandered off to join the wild population. In the 1820s, settlers in Texas, then part of Mexico, primarily raised European cattle breeds. The Texas Longhorn is the result of the accidental crossbreeding of escaped descendants of the Criollo cattle and the cows of early American settlers, including English Longhorns. In the early 1530s, Cabeza de Vaca became the first European to see the interior of Texas. Mainly traveling with a small group, Cabeza de Vaca walked west through what is now the state of Texas and the northeastern Mexican states of Tamaulipas, Nueva León, and Coahuila, and portions of New Mexico and Arizona. He traveled through the then-colonized territories of Texas and the Gulf Coast, but encountered no Europeans. Cabeza wrote that during his travels through Texas, All over the land are vast and handsome pastures, with good grass for cattle. A grass that moved as a heaven-weaved quilt of the earth, as if by root and stem, stood in protection of a hardy breed of livestock known as the Longhorn. Ironically, it was in Texas where the hardy breed of livestock, known as the Longhorn, descended from Spanish Andalusian cattle brought over by early 16th century explorers, missionaries, and ranchers. The new settlers of the land captured the native cattle and bred them with their cattle. 
The interbreeding produced the rangy, hardy longhorn. The Texas longhorn retained the endurance, agility, alertness, ferocity, and muscularity of their Spanish ancestor. Still, their horns grew longer, their bodies more heavy and rangy, and they displayed a nearly infinite variety of colors. No longer did they qualify as black cattle. J. Frank Doby thus pictured a herd of Texas longhorns. Tall, bony, coarse-headed, coarse-haired, flat-sided, thin-flanked, some of them grotesquely narrow-hipped, some with bodies so long that their backs swayed, big ears caught out into outlandish designs, dewlaps hanging and swinging in rhythm with their energetic steps, their motley-colored sides as bold with brands as a relief map of the Grand Canyon, mightily antlered, wild-eyed, this herd of full-grown Texas steers might appear to a stranger seeing them for the first time as a parody of their kind. But however they appeared, with their steel hooves, their long legs, their stag-like muscles, their thick skins, their powerful horns, they could climb the highest mountains, swim the wildest rivers, fight off the fiercest band of wolves, endure hunger, cold, thirst, and punishment as few beasts of the earth have ever shown themselves capable of enduring. On the prairies, they could run like antelopes. In the thickest of thorns and tangle, they could break their way with the agility of panthers. They could rustle in drought or snow, smell out pasturage leagues away, live, without talking about the matter, like true captives of their own souls and bodies. By the 18th century, there were almost four million cattle in Texas. The Spanish missions maintained large domesticated cattle herds, which provided food, clothing, and other products for Spaniards and American Indians. Missions like San Antonio de Bejar and Mission Espiritu Santo were among the earliest ranches in Texas. Despite the ultimate decline of the missions, the ranches, vaqueros, and longhorns remained. In the days before the Texas Revolution, San Antonio was known by many names. Names such as San Antonio de Bejar, La Villa de San Fernando, San Fernando de Bejar, San Antonio de Valero, and La Villita, but most commonly known as La Villa de Bejar, or simply Bejar. The Battle or Siege of Bejar, which was the first major campaign of the Texas Revolution, was waged there in December 1835, but not until Texas won its independence did the town come to be known as San Antonio. After the Texas Revolution and the change in governmental control, many cattle were left to roam free in sparsely populated ranch land. The revolution began in October 1835 after a decade of political and cultural clashes between the Mexican government and the increasingly large population of American settlers in Texas. The Mexican government had become increasingly centralized, and the rights of its citizens had become increasingly curtailed, particularly regarding immigration from the United States. Mexico officially abolished slavery in Texas in 1830, and the desire of Anglo-Texans to maintain the institution of chattel slavery in Texas was also a significant cause of secession. After the conflict ended on April 21, 1836, the effect on economic prosperity began to be realized due to widespread wild cattle throughout Texas. At the time, cattle were considered game, much like deer and buffalo. Abundant food, water, and little human contact allowed the longhorn breed to adapt to the land, 
and the cattle population grew into millions. As early as the 1840s, cattlemen searched out profitable markets for longhorns, but options were few. Some coastal ranchers shipped cattle on Morgan steamers or trailed herds overland to New Orleans and Shreveport. Other cattlemen drove their animals west to California to feed hungry cold miners or to frontier forts and Indian reservations west of Fort Worth. During the Civil War, a handful of cattle drivers moved herds to hungry Confederate soldiers and civilians. However, while a few cattle markets existed, they were meager compared to the overwhelming supply of cattle in Texas. Ultimately, the solution for Texas cattlemen rested directly north, where railroads snaking back to meatpacking centers in the east were beginning to be established. As early as the 1840s, a significant route, sometimes referred to as the Shawnee Trail, extended out of Texas and into southern Missouri and southeastern Kansas. However, local dread over Texas fever, a tick-borne disease carried on Texas cattle that often sickened or killed local stock, led to the obstruction of Texas herds from entering many Midwestern locales. In addition, laws blocking the import of Texas Longhorns to sections of the Midwest, coupled with a surge of frontier settlement, ultimately forced the cattle trails further west. In 1861, Missouri and the eastern counties of Texas banned Texas stock. During the second half of the 19th century, many states attempted to enact restrictive laws to fight the fever. As a result, cattlemen began not only to move their trails westward to avoid the quarantine lines, but also to seek ways to keep their herds in Indian territory and to fatten until they were ready to be sent to market by rail. By 1861, there were more than six times as many cattle as people in the state. Then dawned a time in Texas, remarked one prominent cattleman, that a man's poverty was estimated by the number of cattle he possessed. During the Civil War, with the Mississippi River patrolled by Union gunboats, there was no outlet whereby Texans could market their cattle. Consequently, the stock had increased faster than the surplus could be sold. What the Texan found on his return was a state full of beef with no ready means of turning it into economic gain. At this time, cattle in the north and east brought ten times the price offered in Texas. In 1865, the four-year struggle of North versus South was over. Arms were laid aside, and men from both sides started homeward. The problem now was not how to snuff out an enemy life, but how to sustain human life for prosperity in a mending nation. To the Southerners who returned to Texas, this seemed to offer little handicap. The reason could be found in one word. Cattle. After the Civil War, the Texans needed a way to get these cattle to the east with good facility and promptness. The idea reached fruition when in 1867, the Kansas Pacific Railroad reached Abilene, Kansas, and thus opened up a northern market for Texas with three and a half million cattle. The cowboy era had arrived. Today we're going to review some interesting facts about the characteristics of the Longhorn. These questions will include, are Texas Longhorns difficult to control, and can they be dangerous? Brad, you own some Longhorn cattle, and so I would like to explore your personal experiences on what you have learned when raising this type of cattle. 
How quickly do those horns on those Texas Longhorns grow? That's actually something that I've I've wanted to have a more scientific answer on. Uh, but just as personal personal example, uh, we recently started weaning a, uh, a bull calf who is about not quite seven months old, and at last count, his horns were already about eight inches long. Uh, so they do grow pretty fast. Um, but I, I've seen others that that will grow much slower. Some that just I swear you can almost sit and watch them grow. Uh, I think a lot of it just depends on the genetics of the particular breed. So what do the Longhorns eat or the Texas Longhorns eat? You know, that is a question that could pretty easily uh, stir up a beehive in the uh, the grass-fed versus uh, grain-finished uh, cattle market uh, opinions, of which everyone seems to have a very strong opinion. Uh, in, in our experience, and I think would be true with most people's, uh, Longhorn, because of their heritage, they are lean cattle. Uh, they can survive on on next to nothing. As a matter of fact, it is it is pretty amazing uh, how quickly they will gain weight on on very very little. Because of that, uh, it doesn't matter how much grain that you would try to finish up a Longhorn on. It doesn't add anything to the final product. Uh, longhorn meat just doesn't marble uh, like like your basic uh, domestic beef cattle will. They are meant to be finished out on grain. That said, part of the great part of uh, um, grain finishing uh, your cattle is getting that extra marbling, uh, that little the extra fat in the meat. Uh, you just don't see that with the longhorns. So because of that, it, since they're just not meant for, for marbling, you're never really going to get a, a great tasting ribeye steak off of a longhorn. However, their roasts are just about unmatched, uh, as well as ground beef. They're a Longhorn hamburger is some of the best in the market, and I would stack it up against any other ground beef out there. So we know a little bit about the meat now, but let's talk a little bit about the horns and the hides of the Texas Longhorn. Are they worth money even after it has outlived its usefulness as a beef producer? Oh, absolutely. Uh, occasionally, you will find full uh, dressed and cleaned longhorn skulls out there on the, the market, generally for just decor. People who love especially, uh, you know, Western decor, uh, Southwestern decor, just for their home and, and, and property. Uh, more often than not, you'll just find a, a finished, clean pair of the, the horns, uh, usually on a very nice, nice market, depending on the size uh, you, I've seen them out there for easily two to four hundred dollars. Sometimes, depending on uh, any art or anything that has been done on them post cleaning, uh, you could see them upward for six hundred to a thousand dollars. The hides as well are are just amazing uh, decor. Uh, we've got one Longhorn hide just as a uh, actually a rug underneath our coffee table in the living room. Uh, they're a fantastic market. The great thing about Longhorn cattle is there's there's really just no standard for colors or patterns. Uh, it's just an amazing array of, of patterns and colors you find on, on Longhorn sides. It's really very beautiful at times. Well, Brad, I have one last question for you about the Longhorn. Are the Longhorns intelligent? 
And are they easy to work with? Oh, Longhorn are extremely intelligent. Uh, they've had to be. Uh, for the last 500 years, it's their intelligence that has kept them alive. Uh, in, it's just in the wilds of the American Southwest. It's, there, there's no other breed of cattle, in my experience, that has that same sort of, of heritage, at least not one that, that we're using much on the market today. Uh, they are and can be actually quite friendly. Uh, I know several uh, farmers and ranchers who, who treat uh, a few head almost as pets uh, and have absolutely no intention of ever sending them to market. Keep them around just because they like having longhorns, and who doesn't? They are a beautiful, uh, unique breed of cattle, at least especially to this area. Uh, they are as wild as they are. They can also be extremely gentle. Uh, we've got one uh, cow that will... I mean, every time we go out there, she just happily trots up to see us, you know, wondering what kind of treat we've got out there. Uh, very protective of her young. But I mean, once they once they start to trust you, you can be be their best friend uh, for for the rest of their life. However long that is planned. That's it for now. Remember to check out our Wild West podcast shows on iTunes podcast or wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. You can also catch us on Facebook at facebook.com slash wildwestpodcast or on our YouTube channel at Whiskey and Westerns on Wednesday. So make sure you subscribe to our podcast listed at the end of the description text of this episode to receive notification on all new episodes. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Join us next time as we explore the early cattle trails of the 1800s and the life and times of Joseph G. McCoy. Come along, boys, and listen to my tale. I tell you about my troubles on the old Chisholm Trail. Come a tie, yippee, 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 come a tie, yippee, yippee. Started up the trail October 23rd. Started up the trail with the M&M herd. Come a tie, yippee, 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 come a tie, yippee, yippee. Let's go, let's go, let's go.